Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to chat. My name is Brian Kearney. Absolutely delighted today to be joined by the legend that is Fergie. Fergie, thank you very much for coming on the show today. How are you doing? Whoa. Yes, sir. Good. Uh, good to be on, actually. I've been enjoying the podcast, so fair play to you. Awesome, awesome. Really good to to speak to you. I only actually saw him. one of my friends actually sent it to me the other day um, that you did a, a podcast with Malorca Lee in September. <laughs> <laughs> he sent he, he sent it to me on uh, during the week, and I go, yeah, he's, he's uh, Fergie's actually. I'm doing a podcast with him this week, and I purposely I love those podcasts that Malorca has done. They're they're fantastic, but I purposely I didn't listen to it yet because I didn't want it to uh, influence this one or to sort of um, sort of. <laughs> make me think about what I was going to ask so I'm going to go back and listen to that after this one but um, thanks very much for coming on to you coming on the show I'm just uh, as I said um, never actually met you before so uh, you're living over in, in Vegas now and that's correct isn't it? Yeah me I've been over here 10 years now um, yeah totally different different way of life you know um, <clears throat> I got asked a lot why I moved over and uh I, you know, I just needed to change me, you know, that's why, why I came over here. You know, I started DJ when I was very young, uh, 12, I was back home, went on my first tour when I was 16. And then, um, I, yeah, I was being touring a lot. So I actually got the chance to come here and uh, I snapped it up because I was kind of sick of flying. You know, I was doing like a 20, 15, 20 flights a month. You know, so um, it was a nice break for me, you know. Yeah. So um, how, how have you felt? If you're trying to get away from things, I suppose one of the best places you could go is Vegas in terms of uh, getting away from the madness, but the adult playground that it is. Yep, generally that would be the, that would be, <laughs> that would be the thinking. But um you know, two years before I even came to Vegas, you know, I uh, I wasn't um, I wasn't even partying, mate. You know, I wasn't drinking um, or anything like that. So it was a total. It was a no-brainer for me. You know, um, my friend invited me here, um, offered me uh, you know some gigs. Um, it meant I didn't have to travel. It meant I could get in my car, drive to work, and um, come home. And that's what it was: work. It's very important to um, establish that um, that phrase because many people ask me, "How hey, did you change from playing techno to going playing EDM?" And I was going to work. I never, I never had worked as a DJ before. It was never my work until I came here, you know. So, and I was fine with that, you know. I was fine with that. It was what I needed to do. Um, and then it was actually very enjoyable uh, from learning how to DJ again because I did become a better DJ in terms of reading the room and being able to play different styles of music and making it kind of having to make it all cohesive. You know, it's a it's a different skill playing in Vegas for sure. Not taking anything away from being booked to play a techno event, but when you're going to play a techno event, you're going to play techno. Yeah. So people know what they're going to get, pretty much. Playing in Vegas, it was a totally different thing. It was uh, very hard to 
change into it. The way they like things here is very, very different. And it was parts of me was like, what am I doing? This is like so far from where I want to be musically. But, you know, again, um, I wanted to make changes in my life. Uh, there was some sacrifices made and ultimately, you know, um, it's allowed me to come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, seeing one side of it has, has made me want to come back to the other side. So I've got no complaints, you know. Yeah, obviously you're, you're in Vegas now, but you started out in... Um in a small place called Larn, uh, I've I've heard the the stories about you starting out when you're really young, and the infamous stories about just having to stand on a milk crate when you're doing your <laughs> your first shows, etc. So so you can you sort of uh, be interesting to hear how 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 you got into it at such an early age, and you managed to make those connections and sort of got into playing clubs at a very very young age because it's it's a very um, interesting tale. So how it kind of really started was my friend, my dad's friend was a, a was a, a DJ over in uh, Scandinavia and stuff, and he uh, had left Ireland years and years ago, and he came back. Um, he used to live in the same street as my dad, and his parents still live there as well. So he just came down, basically casually, see my mum and dad, hi, how's it going? Met me, and um, I was like twelve at the time, just twelve. And um, he uh, was going to the arena that night. He was very good friends with Robert, uh, Robbie Nelson and Mark Dobbin and, you know, all that crew. Yeah. And um, he jokingly said to my mom and dad, I'll take Robert with me. Unbeknown to him, my mom and dad, had already, I already had a long leash. You know, I was already uh, doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And... Um, <laughs> and my mom said, yeah, of course. And the look on his face was like, oh, fuck. But um, yeah, we we went, uh, Robbie, Robbie Nelson, Robert Lindsay Mason, Mark Dobbin, me, Mike Collins. I remember them picking me up in Mark Dobbin's father's Ford Escort, white one. And uh, Robert Lindsay Mason was driving, who was then a counsellor of Larne. He was a counsellor. They called him the five deck wizard. He was this kind of eccentric <laughs> American guy. But he was drinking a bottle of Hennessy on the way to the gig. And he, was, he was driving like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm sandwiched in between Robbie Nelson and uh, Mike Collins here in this Ford Escort. And we're going to the arena and the stories that these guys are telling me. And we're driving in the Armand. The stop signs were missing and it was like sniper on patrol. Like this is in uh, 19... 91, 92, probably was yeah, it? Yeah, 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 92, yeah. 93, 92, yeah. So it was peak time, kind of. Height of the trolls. Our, our ma yeah. was, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> our yeah. ma was full throttle. Um, and it was, that was kind of my baptism fire, so to speak, you know. Um, it was actually Robbie's first night playing at the arena. It was his tryout gig. They were having him down to try him out. Like you try and out Robbie Nelson, that's hilarious. Yeah, he's an absolute legend. I've known Robbie, <laughs> I've known Robbie about 17, 18 years. So yeah. some, he's some man, absolutely um, yeah. legend. You know, and that was the first night I met. I went out with him, and Robbie was a huge, huge. Um, I wouldn't say supporter because I, he wasn't. I wasn't really. I wasn't DJing then, but um, he was just 
we just really got on well and he he you know he, he was constantly asking my mum and dad if it was okay for me to go to the clubs with him and I was selling his tapes and stuff and then I was selling them at school and stuff like that you know um so Robbie was a big a big uh, a big influence for me back then um I remember being in the arena and people just walking into the club, going straight on the dance floor and lying down on the floor and thinking, what is going on here? Like, this is absolutely mental. And it would be like um, Mozart playing or some stuff like that. It was crazy. And then uh, Mark Dolman, as soon as everybody was in the club, would be on the microphone and the music would start and the light the light would come out of the ceiling and everybody would just start raving and stuff. And obviously there was chins everywhere and people yeah. trying to like her eyebrows and whatnot. But <laughs> them days were incredible in the arena and, and I didn't really know the difference in different types of music, you know, and, I, and that was a part of the conversation on the way home, you know, trying to talk to them guys that were absolutely wasted on asking them. And I was like, well, that's house music. This is trance and blah, blah, blah. Well, why is it trance and why is it house and you know so that was the questions that was going on then you know because it was um very fresh you know 1992 i mean that whole thing started kicking off kind of late late 80s early 90s uh, yeah. so it was very very fresh to be kind of um in and around it and at that time you know people think i joke you know when i call Lauren the DJ capital of the world. I mean, that's what it felt like, you know. Uh, it's so many amazing DJs that came from there or spent a lot of time down there. You know, even a lot of the Belfast guys, you know, Malloy, Jacko, um, obviously Belfast, but they were spending a lot of time and learned, you know, um, Marty C, Gleave Dobbin, Sticky, um, Robbie Nelson. You know, there was, it was just, uh, it was a great, time for me to be in and around that. Uh, Sticky, I think I mentioned Sticky. Um, Mark Dobbin had a record store, so I wasn't really going to school much in them days, so I was going down, I was playing pitch and toss every day. Fuck me, I didn't even mention Gleave. <laughs> <laughs> I get into trouble. If I miss somebody's name out, you wouldn't believe how much that, they let me know. Like I'm like, Jesus, I've mentioned you guys for years. And it's so hard to try not to, to forget anybody, but you do sometimes. But yeah, so I spent a lot of time down the record store. Sounds good music uh, with Mark and Gleave and everybody and all the DJs that were constantly coming in buying records on a Thursday, you know, and um, just got really friendly with them all. So, you know, I was going to Kelly's uh, again, 92, early 93 with Malloy, Jacko, Marty C and all these. So I'm like seeing this all on full, you know, and just like, what is going on here? Like, and when you were 13 and 14 at these gigs with, with the lads, were you like out in the crowd or were you on stage hidden away so no one could I, see I, it? I was, yeah, so I was on stage to begin with, yeah, you know, yeah. and then I was, I was getting, I was getting to it. Good man, <laughs> good man. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I was already smoking and stuff and drinking at, at that age, you know, I started smoking and drinking at 11 when I was 11, so. I'll never forget that. I mean, I remember being all, all my friends are always older, you know, so I remember them giving me cigarettes and I didn't ever want to inhale it. So I used to blow it. Mm. And, and my beer, I hate the taste of beer, so I'd be giving it the old <laughs> tipping it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
what a great place to be growing up in Northern Ireland and um, in, in that era. Magical, magical, magical. Then to be playing, you know, I started playing at Coldwater at a really young age, you know, um, how that actually came about was Mark Dobbin wouldn't let me in Coldwater. He said, you'll only get in if you're working. So I was working in there from when it opened, 1994. I started working, working in there. And this all changed very quickly from when I was working in there to me getting gigs in there. Um, but I remember walk, working in there as a, as, a, as a kid and just having that feeling of, excitement but not really knowing what was going on seeing these beautiful women like on their little wee mini skirts and their pop socks used to, it was the pops of these big pull-up socks they used to wear and you was just walking about there being horny as fuck <laughs> like oh my god and it was at the time when that calvin klein perfume came out and everybody was wearing it like the whole place just <laughs> yeah 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 but the whole place just smelt of that and they made me wear this red boiler suit you know what i mean so um, I just felt like a raver from the beginning because anybody that was performing on stage had these boiler suits on. So I, my job was to go around and take the empty bottles and glasses off the tables and stuff. But it was just mental to be in there, just seeing the crowd, seeing the energy, feeling the energy and just walking through all that. You know, it was, it was, it was mental. It was like people dancing together but dancing on their own and doing their own dance and like it was all very fresh it's just brand thing. new yeah 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 it was, it was a personal thing but it was a collective as well it was and i don't i didn't know that at the time it's only looking back now at videos and looking back now at old footage and looking at their clothes that they're wearing and you know it was all such a personal statement and an identity that everybody had. it was amazing amazing as you were saying, like that time, all that new music, it was completely new. As you said, you were walking into those clubs, you'd never seen anything like it before. But at the same time, that was at the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland and it was very uh, segregated up there. I remember, Larn is where you used to get the boat over to Stranraer, is that correct? So I, I remember that when I was a kid, I went up there to travel to Scotland, but I remember that we drove up there and we took a wrong turn down it down a street we shouldn't be going down with a Southern Irish Reg and I just it, it, it makes me it just makes me think about what Belfast is like now because our Northern Ireland is just it's completely different to what it was like back then and, and I, I, I did I was speaking to Snyder before I really do think that the dance scene had a massive part to play in the peace process in Northern Ireland 100% without a doubt it was yeah. huge you know there would be certain places that you would go that would be predominantly Protestant clubs, you know. Like the first place I played in Belfast was a bar called the Alexandra on York Road. Now, at the end of the night, they would come in tripping the colour, you know, marching in with the flags and I had to play the Queen. You know, we had the seven inch uh, record of the Queen and, and I that was when I used to DJ with Jordy Parker in there, Jordy P, way, way back. And um, so it was very, very, very tense. You know, I remember them coming up to me and telling me stand up straight and all that, you know, and it was very, very um, 
very, very tense, you know, and then you would have places like the network and it was just very, very tense, but that kind of brought, that was part of the energy, you know, it was part of, it was part of the energy. Then you would go to places like the Ulster Hall. That was the first place I ever seen everybody together, you know, fair enough. Everybody was on one side and everybody's on the other, but you know, you have the dream frequency coming on playing we are one nation and stuff and um, all that sort of thing. Uh, the feeling was unbelievable. I mean, we even got kicked out because of a bomb scare in there, you know, uh, Hellraiser and you can have you ever listened to the tapes you can hear that in the recording like uh, where's Carl Cox they're like well, asking where Carl Cox is and they want to get everybody out and we eventually got back in and the atmosphere was uh, incredible you know that that's what kind of really stuck with me even to this day trying to find that that vibe again you know it'd be hard to find something as fresh and so new as as, as back as it was back then and and as you said like the clubs up there there was the Met Arena there was Kelly's there was there was loads of different Circus Circus up there as well obviously yep. this is a little bit before my time I'm, I'm a, a few years younger than you but I, I, lo- I like reading about the history of clubbing and where it all started and I have a huge amount of respect for people like Robbie Nelson and Carl Hammond and all these guys who, who were the ones to start this because if it wasn't for guys like that I wouldn't have a career doing what I want to do you know you look at big X-Ray X-Ray you know there's not enough said about Ray you know Ray brought so many people over the harmony you know yeah um, huge 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 events um, but yeah there's not really I would say he's probably uh, talked about the least like there's not enough respect respect yeah yeah it's like mm-hmm. what he and it cultivated, you know, and then he went on to create that, uh, moved into the more hardcore stuff, you know, which was only really him putting that sort of thing on, you know, with the intelligence parties and, you know, you're having the uh, Tizer and all them boys, <laughs> MC Dudley, <laughs> you know, um, all them guys. I mean, I could mention all of them, but um, that was just a whole scene that he, he, created the came out of the hard, the hardcore rave then turned into the happy hardcore you know and uh, that was all the tapes we were getting as kids you know listening to, to all that stuff but um, it was a phenomenal time and um, I think without jumping too far forward but you know look at the talent that's coming it's from back home there's always been incredible talent but there seems to be it seems to be reaching even further now, you know. So many great, great talents. Especially like, even now, like you look at like likes of Bicep, Matador, all different types of electronic music. Ireland, the, the island of Ireland for producing artists is, is ridiculous. Even like actors, bands, like it's for such a small island, the impact totally. that it has on the arts is, is incredible. Because there's so much character there. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's so much character and you learn that, you learn having that character from you're a kid with your granny, whether it's she's in there fucking telling you a couple of these stories or something. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? There's there's something to say, whether it's from the songs that we grew up singing, whether they're Catholic songs or Protestant songs or whether they're just folk songs or whatever it is. There's always a wee skip in you, do you know what I mean? Or a wee bit of a jig and you're, you know what I mean? There's always a the crack. It's the crack, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the word. That's the word. Yeah. That is it. Hit the needle on the head, you know. And um, 
plenty of personality, you know, plenty, plenty of personality. Um, it was, I mean, obviously I left, I left when I was 16. You know, I, I, I first left home when I was 14. I went to, le- I left Lauren to go and live in uh, Belfast because at the time I was playing at the Alexandra on a Friday night. I was playing at the airport in Antrim on the Saturday night. And I was 14. And that place, wow. The airport was so intense. The police wouldn't even go there. I've gone <laughs> outside there, and I'm not joking. I've seen a guy's neck being cut out of a, a big pint bottle harp. I've seen a, a, a bit of an ear on the, Like, the police wouldn't go there, mate. It was... It was mental. It was so ferocious place to be if you were the wrong person or yeah, you were you the wrong thing. Or, yeah. You know, I, the first night I ever played in there, my brother was with me actually, and the electric went off. And I used to play in this room downstairs. All I can describe it was, it was like that scene in Blade where the blood's coming down and stuff. Obviously there was no blood coming down, but that just intensity and the electric went off and they all started throwing chairs in a DJ booth and bottles and it was absolutely mental. It was mental. But um, that was the only time it, uh, that happened but it was such a such an intense place. Incredible place. Um, and that's that's the reason why I never seen Tony DeVee the first time first two times he came over to play in Kilwater because um, I was playing at the uh, the airport and um, I was like well I'm not I was buying Tony's records I'm like well I'm not taking a night off to go and see anybody you know what I mean uh, the third time he came um, was uh, the birthday party and I, went, I actually did take a night off and Thank fuck it is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I went down and, um, you know, they let me stand in a DJ booth and I tortured them. I tortured the life out of them, you know, writing down all his tracks and talking to him in between mixes. Like, who does that? <laughs> like every mix. And he never told me to piss off, you know. And um, he gave me his number. Because I was like, there was no way he was getting out of there without giving, not giving me his number, you know. And um, uh, um, as you know, in Ireland, most nightclubs back then were in a hotel. So, you know, um, after Tony was finished, Tony would always he would come over then he would fly back to trade because the set was at eight o'clock in the morning. So he'd get an early flight and go back to London. Um, but I said to him, you know, I hope you're up there with your records and stuff. And I go up in this room and that and talking to him. And um, he's asked me questions about himself, and I told him I left school really early on, and I take my t-shirt off and I grab his hand to put it on my chest, and he pulls his hand away and all that. And I'm like, "What? Yeah, you weirdo!" And I didn't know he was gay or anything. You know what I mean? I'd never knowingly met any gay people. It wasn't you weren't kind of walking around Northern Ireland back then. It was just it was unspoken, right? It was different, you know, and. Um, I still didn't know. I went down into the, the after party they used to have in cold water underneath the stage. And um, I'm walking in there, they'll call me Fergie the faggot magnet. <laughs> and I'm wondering what they're talking about, you know. And, um, you know, it wasn't until um, 
I've been speaking to Tony quite a lot on the phone. I phone him probably three or four times a week on my mum's phone. Somebody told me back then if you, you know, the, the phone used to touch, if you'd done like a 10 zeros, bum, 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 then you put the number and then it was free. Mm. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> That's not free. Anyway, every time I phone Tony, he would pick the phone up every time. Every time. And, um, you know, then he started coming over more and he would stay at my mum and dad's house and um, got to know my mum and dad. And still, we didn't know Tony was gay, you know. And he just... Some people like being really queenie and blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, Tony was just... He he didn't. That just wasn't him. Um, And um, never found out until I was invited. He invited me to go and stay with him for a week. And I was so excited. And he called me up. He said, you can't come. And I was like, why? And he was like, uh, because you're really young and it'll, it, it could look strange. And I was like, nah, you know, I'm going all against this. And he just said, I'm a puff and put the phone down. <laughs> and then um, his friend Alex called me up and, um, yeah, we eventually got it sorted. And I went over for a week. We call it in 1996. And that is also when the ceasefire broke. And it was all on the news. And Tony being Tony and not really understanding this was normal life for us, seeing all this was freaked out. And he's like, oh, you can't go back. You know, let's you know stay here while it calms down and stuff like that. You, do you want to stay here? And I was like, course of you know like every weekend I'm going to like money pennies gate crasher cream <laughs> tree everywhere who's not going to want to stay there as a 16 year old you know and that's what happened in 11 years I was there then you ended up staying where where, where where he lived you moved over to and you stayed there for 11 years we'll say yeah well I stayed that was me in England for 11 yeah. years you know, yeah. obviously I uh, was with Tony for a good few years and you know Tony passed away um, 1998 was it yeah which was unbelievable terrible 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 all the worst things ever to kind of see or go through you know especially as a as a kid you know what I mean yeah and how exactly did you did you deal with it um It was very, very strange. You know, I remember going in to see Tony on the Tuesday night. Actually, England were playing um, Argentina. It was the night David Beckham got sent off. It was Michael Owen's first England appearance. And I remember being in there with Tony. And um, I mean, he was really bad. And he started saying all this stuff to me like, you know, I'm really... um, I'm not gonna get to see you doing well. You know, I'm 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 not gonna be able to see it. You know, and he was saying all this really heartfelt stuff to me. And I just was thinking, you know, he was just heavily sedated and you know, stuff like that. And obviously he was very he was very ill. And then um 
next day I got a call, you know, he was, he was dead. So it was mind blowing, you know, incredible. Like I was very, it was so scary. Like I was, you know, living in a bed set at the time. And I don't know why this happened, but at nighttime I, I was so scared to even look out the window in the dark. I kept thinking I'd see Tona. It's mad, like my head was so like, I'm not even that I should be scared of seeing Tony, but it was, it was just really, I don't know what that was. It was just, it was just confusion, just like not really knowing what was going on. I guess it was just grieving, you know, not, yeah. but there wasn't a lot of time for, for, you know, it was a few days, um, you know, and he got buried on the 10th of July and, and, and the family, he was met by God's kitchen that night. And the family were like, you gotta do, you gotta do his cake. I'm like, fucking hell. I was like, Jesus. You know, so here I am in God's kitchen, um, having to play this Tony V cake. Which was incredibly emotional, obviously, um, just for everybody there, you know, it was, it was mental. I don't even know if I was really, uh, really there. I mean, I, I don't know. It was such a blur thinking back on it, you know, but um, that from that, from that gig, then that's when everything really changed for me because then um, everybody wanted me to fulfill all his dates you know and the family wanted me to fulfill his dates and um, it just went mental you know then I, I was doing Tony's diary basically and um, yeah my whole world really really went into kind of fucking overload from that you know and the, the experience I had obviously I've been DJing for quite a few years before that but you know um, now you were getting big attention you know you're doing interviews and stuff and um, you know uh, you were it went it really changed because before that, you know, getting really known as being a hard house DJ. So, um, you really had that label then, you know, which was something that Tony was all, I mean, Tony brought the hard house sound to the masses for sure, but he wasn't just the hard house DJ. And that was a battle he always had because he wasn't just playing hard house at cream and miss money pennies, you know, um, stuff like that. You know, he was playing across the board. He was like um, the DJ's DJ almost, like the way everyone now, Carl Cox is like everyone's favourite DJ, especially all the DJs. That's what Tony DeVee was like in the 90s. Now, obviously, I, I'm too young to have ever seen him play or anything, but I, I've heard some of his sets and obviously The Dawn is one of my favourite songs ever and I don't care all the, the amazing remixes he's doing, 99 Floor Elevators, I know all that stuff, but like, <laughs> yeah. he, he's just, that's, he was the, the DJ's DJ because I listened to a podcast that Mallorca did with uh, BK and he had a very similar story uh, where he was playing a trade and 
the effect that Tony's passing had on him and the effect that it had on the hard house scene and stuff. Oh, and yeah, every everyone had so much respect for him. It was huge, you know, and, and trade. Just to talk about trade, you know, trade. When I was talking about, you know, I was in search of that incredible Irish energy and excitement. And and I I got the only similar vibe I got to that was when I went to trade. And I was thrust into this kind of uh, gay underworld. It was phenomenal. It was that energy in there was unbelievable. It was just because there is me again in this fresh scene that I'd never been exposed to before. So it was it was totally new to me. So that it was the energy and there was electric. I mean, the first time I walked in there with Tony, I was thought it was a bit strange, you know, and I'm walking in here. You know, there's these big, huge muscle guys, you know what I mean? Wearing these little shorts and angel wings and shit on their back. You know, what the fuck's all right? You're not be getting that up in your group, mate. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I remember going to the DJ booth. I remember taking a uh, half a pill, jumping, going straight back out and dance floor and uh, just getting my top off. And then all of a sudden, I'm just not feeling so sure <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> and I went back in the DJ booth and I stayed in there for weeks. Anytime we went to trade, I used to dread it. I'm like, uh, it was so intense. I was never against gays. I didn't really know much about it. It was just so intense. The music was hard. The energy was so, like, you were packed in there, you know? And um, it was so intense. And there would be, you know, you would see the guys kissing each other, but it would be so, like, violently kissing. And I'm like, wow, this is mental, you know? And... it was freaking me out, you know. I, I didn't feel comfortable out in the thick of it. I was okay in the DJ booth because the DJ booth was soundproof. There was yeah, a door yeah, on, yeah. there was a lock on the door, and everything. And um, all it did was was uh, make people want to wind me up even more, you know, <laughs> because they really believed that I was Tony's. You know, I was obviously having a bit with Tony. You know what I mean? Um, so they kind of like to wind me up even more. And it wasn't until Lawrence Malice, the owner of Trade, came in and he was like, listen, you know, you just need to go out and enjoy yourself. This is no way to be. And, you know, uh, just give a few of them a kiss and they'll leave you alone. So I just, because <laughs> they always kissed each other to welcome, you know, to greet yeah, each yeah. other. So I just, when was kissing everybody, you know what I mean? I just went around kissing everybody and the whole thing just changed. It was just a lot calmer, you know? And, um, but, you know, Tony, even when Tony first started playing trade, Tony was, would be throwing up outside. It was intense. Like he was so nervous, you know, and, um, he got me my first gig in there. The trade DJs never changed ever. Alan Thompson, Malcolm Duffy, um, Steve Thomas, Tony DeVee, Ian M, Pete Wardman, Tall Paul. That was the lineup. If one of the DJs couldn't make it for the gig, then the other one done a longer set. You know, maybe Steve would cover for Tony, you know. Um, but there would be no new DJs allowed. 
once a year they would do a thing in the back room called the Trade Test Lounge. And Tony invited me to play in there. And I was 16 at the time. It was when I first went over. And um, I never put my first record on. There was this big, huge monitor in the DJ booth. And it, for some reason, it just kept bouncing the needle. I was like, oh, fuck me. And everybody came in the club because I was Tony's boy to hear me play. And it was like all the other DJs that weren't playing at the time. Uh, Lawrence Malice, Rod Lay, like all the local London promoters and stuff just because they all love Tony and this needles keeps jumping me and I'm like, oh my God, this is like the worst nightmare. And this big tranny came over to give a tune gum out of his life and just got the arm of the needle, put it on and then it was all good. <laughs> put a bit of wheat on the needle and applied my set. And then um, they invited me to uh, start covering for Tony when he wasn't there which didn't go down well at all. Then all, everybody really hated me then. Jeez. You know, in the main room. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't good for, it wasn't good for a while. They really did not like it. Not the punters, the DJs and, and the, the people on the fringes who wanted to be DJs. And it was a big statement. It was a big statement. You know, I was, uh, street guy playing in there and um i was just very young and um yeah it was very uh it was very very intense time so, i'd say it was um I, I have a similar sort of story with regards to someone that you were very close to in the scene obviously tony did um so much for you and your career but like around 14 to 14, 15 years ago, I became very friendly with um, Barry Connell, who was res resident at Inside Out in the Arches. And we were just, we were very similar people. He, I was starting to sort of make music at that time and he was um, <clears throat> playing my tracks and he was coming over, staying in my house. And then I was going over, staying with him and his fiance. And he was um, doing a, an essential mix live at the Arches in 2008. And, um, I went over and stayed with him and he was after being overstaying with me because we were working on music together for him to play in the Essential Mix. But on, on the day of the uh, Essential Mix, he said he wasn't feeling well. Um, he just he, he just said he'd no energy. He didn't really feel well. But he, he still went, um, played the Essential Mix. He played about six or seven of my tracks in, in the Essential Mix and I was staying with him in his house and we were back having a little party afterwards. But he wasn't really... Um, he wasn't really getting involved. He was just sort of saying, I'm too tired, I'm going to bed. And um, a couple of days later, I heard that he was after, he was going in, he went into hospital and um, he had suspected meningitis. And I was like, what the fuck's going on here? So I, I, I thought everything was going to be fine. And at the time I was in, um, I was in college, I was doing an apprenticeship, elect electrical apprenticeship. So I was doing a time in, in college for uh, tech. And uh, my phone rang and it was Barry's manager and he just said, um, he just said I had some bad news, Barry's gone. I was, I was there, gone where? Where's he gone? And he's, pa he's passed away. And I was like, what? How is this, how is this possible? So he was after getting a real um, rare form of meningitis that literally five days earlier I'd been over in his house staying with him and we were at the arches, he played a set and then five days later he was gone. So it was just... 
I don't know. I don't even know whether I really properly dealt with it. And like it's it's similar to yourself, because because for me, um, I always for me I always feel like my big break or the biggest show that sort of got me going in terms of my international shows was at a place called Sunrise in Poland. And this was a show that I wasn't even supposed to play. This was a gig that Barry was supposed to play. But I was, um, they chose me to take his place. Um, so that, I've never, like, I'd still think of it as one of the best gigs I've ever done. I, I just, I gave it absolutely everything. I felt like I was possessed doing the show. I know you said when you, you played for Tony, it wasn't, it felt like you weren't present or wasn't real but for me it was like the opposite it was like I was absolutely possessed playing that set and that I had to give my best possible performance that I could so fr from that um, for me playing that set at a gig that I shouldn't have been playing at because one of my mates was after dying I sort of carried this guilt with me a little bit for a few years going like because then things started getting better and better and better for me. And I, I still carried this guilt going, like, I should have never played that gig. That was Barry's gig to play. My career is progressing because my mate died and I took his place. And it's probably still there a little bit. I know it's probably, like, I haven't really spoken about it, but it's, 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 it's sort of how I felt for a long time that it just felt like my big break came because my mate died. And it's it, it's sort of hard for me to sort of deal with, um. But at the same time, be, knowing the person that he was, he wouldn't want me thinking like that in any way. So I'm, I'm just, you said something similar that f f because Tony passed away, you sort of stepped into his, um, spot and started playing. Did you ever sort of feel anything anything like that because your career sort of went from here to here as soon as, as Tony passed? Still do, yeah. <laughs> Still do, and it's exactly. I never knew that story at all. It's unbelievable, man. It's so unbelievable. Obviously, I mean Barry was, you know, hitting the legendary status, and what a following he had. Yeah, um, I didn't know that. I didn't know that story. It's so sad. Yeah, viral men enjoy it. This is what he had, and just it was. It was so hard because, they, like, for a couple of months then after that, a few times I went over and stayed uh, with his fiance. Just this, this, I don't know how, I don't know how anyone can get through it because they were supposed to get. They were like, that happened. He died on the twenty fourth of April, and they were supposed to get married in July. And then in July was when I did that gig, and like, she she never got to marry the person who she loved more than anything else, and it was just, it was a, it was a. It was just a very uh, strange sort of time where I didn't really deal with it. I'd say 2008 was the year that I did more partying than I've ever done in my entire life. So my way of probably dealing with the grief was to just go wild, you know, that sort of way instead of facing it. But, yeah, um, yeah, you know. Sure. But that's incredible. And yeah, I mean, you'll probably never have answers for that. And, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of glad I don't have any answers for it because it's like it, it makes me turn to it and think about it a lot, you know, and the what ifs and stuff and whatever way I can recall or think about Tony, you know, it's, it's welcomed, you know, whether it's questions or questions that will never be answered, you know, and 
you know, um, you just, yeah, it's just thankful for the time we came, we did have, you know, I'm sure it's the same for, for you. Um, it's really hard to put in the words, man. It's like, it's, I've never, you know, like you've never ever been in that situation. I've been never in it again, but I was like, how do you deal with that? Like, it's totally, it's a, it's a, it's a huge pressure on there as well. You know, it's, um, obviously you've seen the huge, you know, I had a huge backlash from when I wanted to change the music and that was incredible incredible energy from people hateful <laughs> and that was hard to take as a kid you know I was 20 years old and um, you know and it was stemmed a lot of it from two things people having you know uh, the missing Tony having the love and respect for what Tony had built and and seeing me as the person to carry on this legacy um, and also being seen to be the person that was destroying the legacy, but only really, they're only really thinking of it in one way, you know, they, they had forgot that Tony was one of the most forward thinking DJs. They had just kept the compartment in their mind that Tony was a hard house DJ. So they weren't understanding my evolution. They weren't understanding that I started DJ when I was 12. Why would I not progress as a as a, an older man, 20 years old, you know, having been playing for uh, eight years, seven years already? Um, and the questions I always did ask myself, what would Tony be doing? Like, what would Tony be looking for? Like, you know, I always question, okay, Tony made the dawn. It's the least hard house record he ever made. What did he go, you know? So I always had that in my mind and I was always questioning stuff like that. And uh, some of the, and, and the, the worst thing about it was, I guess, was it was at the time when message boards and forums were coming online. So I was getting it so much from every angle and it was a new kind of phenomenon for people. So people felt that, you know, their point of view was very important and they had to be absolutely say the worst thing that they could that was on their mind. And nobody was really thinking about some 20 year old reading that and thinking, I wonder how Ferg's taking all this. You know, it was very, 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 very hard. Didn't understand it. Didn't understand it, you know. Um, um, but when you're when you're twenty, like that's 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 like that's that's you're not a man. That's like you're a kid. Like I'm, I'm nearly thirty nine years of age now, and I, I think I'm only sorting to figure out what life's about now. When you're twenty, you haven't a clue. When you're twenty five, you haven't a clue. When you're thirty, yeah. you don't have a clue. Like it's yeah. I mean, I'm, when I say a man, you know, I'm thinking about from when I started as a kid, you know, DJing and 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 you know, I'd gone through in normal life, like the, the growth of a kid to becoming a man or starting to become a man, I guess. But um, it was just very hard. People didn't really, you know, they were coming to amnesia and stuff, you know, and, and holding up placards like 
fuck off and play harder. And it was really, it wasn't good. Like it was, it was, it was hard. And it was, ultimately it was the right thing to do. It was a lot of hard decisions made. You know, I remember um, Steve Thomas asked me to mix the first Triple E tracks compilation. And it was at the same time as this was all going on. And I was like, I can't, I can't do it. Like I have to, it was a huge, a huge honor for me. I mean, Triple E back then was incredible and I loved Steve, like, um, but I had to make a decision, you know, this is going to put me back in that hard house stable. Yeah, big time. So it was hard um, and I had to kind of stick to my guns a bit and there wasn't really much, wasn't a lot of support, you know, apart from my family and stuff like that. But, you know, I didn't understand it and they didn't understand it either. <laughs> so it was just getting pelted. Um, but then, you know, my mum said something that changed a lot for me. And that was that, you know, Robert, you have to understand that these people are really annoyed with you about the Tony situation, but they're also annoyed about about what you have done to them. It's very personal because these people have been putting their life, their time, traveling to see you at gigs, spending their wages that they've been working their ass off to go to your gigs, not going to one gig, not going to two, you know, following you all around the place. Like there was people used to follow me to Ibiza. I was going every week. You know, so my mom was like, you need to stop looking at it like these people are full of hate. It's like, that's the only way they know how to channel their emotion. But they're just really sad that and angry that you've taken really good memories and a really good, good time that's been happening and you've taken it from them. And now they, re they hate you, they resent you because it's like, they no longer are looking at these memories as good times. They resent you now. And when she said that to me, it made me understand. And from that point on, when people were having these hate-filled remarks towards me, I would reply to them. I would make a point of replying to them and kind of trying to talk them through it. And, and they all always... Always, I've never had one yet that was just like, nah, you're a, you know, the, the point of view changed when I was able to explain, I'm just a fucking normal person. Like, I'm just playing, music. I'm just a DJ, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's not like we go it's not like we go and learn how to do any of this we just we winged all this like my entire career is just making it up as I go along like nobody taught totally. me how to do anything or learn anything or how to behave totally. it's just uh, you learn by experience that's that's the way it yeah. is yeah. No, you're literally just someone that has been in the crowd that loves the music as much as the person who's standing beside you dancing chewing her face off but you know you have put in the extra work to be up there supplying the music it's the difference you know it's the difference 
Yeah, a lot of it comes from is there's jealousy involved in it as well. People are envious, like like you're there explaining this situation. Like this was probably at the time when you were probably at your at the peak of your popularity and stuff. And from from speaking to you, it's probably one of the unhappiest times as well. So like people are looking at you, thinking like you have this incredible job. You're traveling all over the world. You're playing here and there, but ultimately you weren't overly joyous with, with what was going on in your life at the same time and like I think yeah, people like we it's probably the same way I look at like footballers the, the lives they have but like like my job isn't a normal job per se but the same for a footballer it's still a job at the end of the day it's still just a human being with two arms two legs two eyes the same as everybody else you know it's a job is a job regardless of what it is that you actually do Totally, you know, it was, at, it was at that point when I started filling the DJ booth with just all my friends and I was literally just playing for them then at that point. You know, I was just playing for people that were, uh, whether they were blowing smoke up my arse or whatever it was. You know, I was, I just needed, and my whole head was just shot, confidence was everything, just, it was very, very, um, you're just very unsure, you know what I mean? Like, of everything, because everything's being thrown at you, you know? And um, back then, in them early days, all we had, for most part, obviously there was DJs making a lot of music, but for most part, all you had every week was the assurance of, if your gig was good, you're, you're happy days. If you don't have a shit gig, then you're shit until your next gig. You know, you didn't have any music or stats to back up and, and be like, oh, wow, I've got all these stats and I'm doing really well because Spotify says or these downloads on this site. You didn't have any of that. If your last gig was shit, you're shit until your next one. Fucking big love it, you know. So when I was doing a lot of these gigs, there was just a lot. I was playing a lot of different music and a lot of people were like, well, we don't know what Ferg's going to play, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because I was so scared of being pigeonholed again. I didn't want to be like, okay, well, now I'm a trans DJ, or now I'm a techno DJ, or now I'm, you know what I mean? So I was literally just playing a bit of everything that I liked. <laughs> it was annoying for promoters and for people who have been supporting me for many years, but... You know, there's nobody sitting you down having a having a business meeting about uh, you know developing yourself as a DJ and marketing and and keeping uh, you know keeping your core fans like it was you were just a DJ that was getting booked to play at a party because you were playing good tunes. You know what I mean? It wasn't there was no strategy. Do you know what I mean? Um, people say to me, would you have changed anything looking back? No. How can I change anything? My, I've, my life has been amazing. Plenty of ups and downs. It's been fucking interesting. Um, you know, it's easy for people to look back with rose-tinted glasses and, and, and look at the landscape. I, I dealt with the landscape how I felt best at the time with the knowledge that I had. You know what I mean? The, the knowledge that we all had. It wasn't a business. It wasn't a business. You were never, you were playing music because, like I just said, you know, oh, they're booking you because you play good music and it's a good buzz and maybe you're a little crazy Irish guy getting wasted. Okay, cool. 
you know, I was never, there was never, a, I was never even looking at it like, okay, they're booking me because I'm filling the club and they're charging into the club and the promoter's getting all this money. I wasn't even, we're not even thinking, but then the thought didn't go that far for me. It really didn't go that far. I didn't think about it that much. So you were, this was like around, you were playing in probably at the top of the hard house scene for like two to three years, probably from about 99 to 02. And then around 02, 03, you started to sort of shift over to sort of the groovy oh, techno. Was it was around 02, 03 that you started? 01, 01 when I was really shifting. Um, that's when I was really shifting. Um, so what happened was... Um, you know, I turned down the Triple E tracks compilation. Then Ministry actually approached me and asked me to do three compilations for them. Um, I done two, and then they fucking cancelled the third one. Um, the first one was uh, Hard Energy, where they picked all the songs. The second one, they tried to pick all the songs again uh, for the headliners, and I was like, I'm not. Not doing it. I didn't use one song that they picked <laughs> and um, that was the last one they cancelled my third one they're like whoa uh, you're not doing any more <laughs> I was like whoa you know what I mean like I that hard energy is a, is a, is a fine representation of what hard house and, and kind of uh, hard house meets BXR at the time sound and I was playing all them songs but I was playing all them songs six months before that and then here they are want me to put on a comp and I and I went with it because I was naive and and they paid me a fucking shitload of money as well. So I was just like, oh my God, this is the ministry and you gotta go and do what they say. And the next one, not so much. Um it was around this time that you did a really big show in a stadium up up in Northern Ireland, was it? In, was that in Larn that you did the Big that radio was, yeah, one show. 2001, yeah. That was in 2001. That was uh, my first. That was after. So what happened was, uh, Jules actually got my first Essential Mix. I think you did 13 uh, in the end. Is it 13 Essential Mixes? Yep, 13, yeah, 13, yeah. <laughs> 13, absolutely wasted. Um, done the first one. So massive props for Jules for getting me, uh, getting me that. I was really close with Jules back then. Man. Really close one. I'm an Amanda, and um, he got me the first one. Then Radio One approached me um, to possibly do a pilot. And I'd done a pilot, and they were like, "Yeah, this is terrible. You sound as if you have a coat hanger stuck in your mouth. We won't be doing anything." Like <laughs> and um, Matt Priest called me up then, and um, he asked me uh, if I would be interested at all in being. Uh, the first joint ever essential mix resident with Carl Cox. <laughs> nice company. Yeah. So, you know, going from that first read that I went to with Carl, the, the bomb scare, and then the being asked this and was just mind blown. So I done that. That was uh, the first kind of residency. I had a radio one. Then they asked me if I wanted my own show. They gave me Danny Rambling's show. 
And um, another great comment that I'll never forget on the website was, why would you trade a a Ferrari for an Escort? (laughs) Obviously, I'm not the Ferrari. (laughs) And they gave me Danny's show, um, which was crazy for me, because I used to sit at home listening to Pete Tong and love group dance party, you know, so this was all surreal. But what it did heighten was that I started getting sent so many records, promos. So it heightened me playing even more various different styles. You know, on a set, I'm playing Felix the House Cat and I'm also playing BK and I'm playing, you know, Les Hemstock and Mirage, you know, that uh, stuff like that. So it was a, really across the board. And then I started really getting into techno. And at that point, I was just, it just wasn't a choice for me. It was just like, like, this is, this is it. That's when it was unbelievable then around that year, all the real chunky 138, Uh, 140, banging Marco Bailey and Filterheads and all that stuff. Uh, I used to go, yeah, Kanziani, all that stuff. I used to go and watch Mario Bocato play for six hours at Gay Crasher around then. It was just... Exactly, and I always hear that playing tomorrow. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, because my set was his set. I was playing all his tunes. <laughs> so it was like, when I played Romaro, it was like, you know, there was part of me was trying to be respectful. And then the other part of me was like, yeah, you want to do it. Fuck it. You got to respond there, yeah. <laughs> and what, and, you know, and even at that stage, you know, and I've said this tomorrow, one of the big things I would do wish I'd, have a little bit of regret. I wish I I did spend a lot of time with Morrow, but I didn't know Morrow's history. I didn't know all of his history. I didn't know all of it. Like them early Morrow Bacall records were my, I was listening to like, you know, RAF, like that was the first when I was going to the church disco, that was what the music were playing, the RAF <laughs> stuff and, you know, Project Khan and The Prodigy and, like, I, I didn't know that was tomorrow, you know? Yeah. I did not know until later down the line. I was like, wow. You know, and this is funny, I'm skipping forward here, but I have to mention it because of the Alpha Centauri track that I did. Which is basically birdie. Yeah. But when I was making it, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear to God, I was not sitting down going, mm, I wasn't making Verdi. It, what it didn't, that's not. I posted a clip on Instagram and people were like, it's Verdi. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, it's Verdi. And just having that moral sound burnt into your head subconsciously, like, you have to trust me. If I'm ripping a song off, I will sit down and say, I'm going to rip this song off. There's an idea from it I want to take and, you know, I'm just going to do it. That is not what happened with Alpha Centauri. It's not. And it's clear that's what it is, but that's not what happened. And people are like, you know, that's really disrespectful, you know, doing that tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, listen, you fucking clown. I'm being rude. I don't care. You should go and listen to fucking old Morrow stuff back in the day. 
he was fucking ripping off Frank the Wolf left, right, and center. <laughs> I said tomorrow, do you mind that I've used this here? It wasn't intentional. And he's like, uh, just send me a copy. I absolutely love it, you know. So and uh, and and someone did say to me, and rightly so, rightly so, when I posted about it, I actually done a post about it on my Instagram. And they said, I really think you should have at least mentioned Morrow. And I went back and I read on the whole post and I was like, do you know what? You're right. You're right. Even though I didn't intentionally set out to do it, that is what it is. There's no getting away from it. It is. That's what it is. And it's beautiful. And it was a big song for me back then. And it's ironic that it's come back and it's an even bigger song for me now. And I and I do like to give mention people where they're where the credit is there, where the inspirations come from. You know what I mean? That song, you know, obviously I ended up, I went with Davy Forbes. Davy Forbes perfected that sound for me. My version of Alpha Centauri, couldn't have played it in a nightclub for sure. (laughs) But that's not me. I am an ideas. I will sit in this studio and I'll get the ideas together and I'll blah, 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 blah. My the problem with my music is it sounds like it was made in the nineties. That's perfect for now. That's what everyone wants to fucking hear. Well, it is, but it's unfortunately the ideas are like the nineties, but the sound and the mixing qualities are also like the nineties. There's no much EQ going on with the bass and the kick and stuff like that. But that's. What that that's that's why it sounds so good though because there was no overthink and stuff. There's with production now, especially for me. There's too many options. To, to, there's too yeah. many sample packs. There's too many plugins. Yeah. Back yeah. then, you took a kick in the bass, you put it together, yeah. and it sounds so clean. And that's yeah. it, that's why it works so well. And and the reason the reason why that '90s sort of sound is is sort of working now is because the people who would have went out out in the 90s have had kids and those kids are now going out to venues and clubs and they're probably after being grown up listening to the music that their mom and dad have been listening to. So they're just carrying it on. So this is why yeah. the 90s songs are so popular now, you know? So that's why it's, so, it's resurgence. I'm loving it. You know, there, and people say that me coming back, if you like, I mean, I was, I, you don't, you won't know this, but I was done with EJ seven months ago. I was actually done. I wasn't playing on Vegas anymore. I'm like, I'm not, I, I didn't want my contract. I didn't renew my contract with Hakusan. I didn't, you know, we sold everything. We walked away. That was 2020 was my biggest earning year ever. And I ended up not earning any of it because of COVID. We just finished building our dream home. It took us two years. Like this place was incredible. And we ended up, we had to walk away from everything. We left it and went and lived in a caravan. It's mental. It's mental. But it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful, uh, I was so happy. My wife was like, what, what, what's going on? But I was hating going to work so much. I was doing, you know, 20 odd gigs a month playing that music. You know, when it's music that you're playing, it's bypassing your heart and it's just going to your head yeah. and you're telling you know, yeah. Isn't you know, it's very different uh, emotional roller coaster. Work. Yeah, yeah, it feels like work. Um, yeah. You know, and I was doing 250 shows a year, you know, a lot. And um, 
become very, very, very hard. And, you know, I was still having the pride of wanting to do the best show I can do. I'm not into this music, but here I am. I, I've learned to read the room. I've learned, you know, it's more like maths over here. Every record has an exact purpose. It's reaction. You know, there's no kind of, the fillers have a purpose. Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. But it was just all really intense, you know, especially the amount of money people pay. And here, like, I've been in there, people spend a million bucks. A million bucks? And a couple of bottles of beer? Unbelievable. Do you know what I mean? It's mad. It was just a lot of pressure. And, um, so when that all came to head, you know, I was like, I, I am three weeks into this. I'm like, I'm so happy. I'm, I don't want to go back to doing that as much or doing that at all. Sorry, at that point. And I had started um, becoming a life coach, started doing all my exams and uh, getting heavily into that. I, I felt that I still had a purpose within the, the music industry, the creative world. You know, I have 11 of my friends have killed themselves since 2006. I felt that there was something more I could give someone that has been in that world that I've been sober for many years. And, you know, there must be something else I can give, you know. So I still do a lot of that, but my wife said to me, why don't you just play some music you love? And it never dawned on me. It never dawned on me because I've been here for 10 years on that, you know, you got to play this, you have to play this, blah, 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 blah. It never dawned on me. And um, uh, Barry from Fresh DJs, actually, you know, uh, he had put some old school gigs in for me. And um, the plan was that I would just go and do some kind of old school gigs. And then um, it, it already got my mind thinking. So I'm like, fuck it, shitty wiki. And I, and I sent him a couple of ideas and he was like, I just got to be honest with you that like you have got to come like this. These ideas have got to come out like you've got to come back. You have to come back. It's a perfect time. You know, people are really wanting that older sound done in a new way. And, you know, if you're ever going to come back, now is the time. Like techno is not as, you know, as it used to be, like the gatekeepers that held me back when I was trying to make it in techno. Um, them doors are not there anymore. You know, I had all these um, techno institution DJs that weren't comfortable with me, Fergie, the hard house guy, coming and playing these gigs. So I went as far as I could back then in the techno thing. That was what I wanted to ask you. Did you ever feel fully accepted into that scene? No, never. No, no. Oh, and that's why I came here because... I, I, they were all, when I, when I started putting techno out, um, because you met, worked at Marrow, you made Funky Town and Funky Tech and you had a few other yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, and that was very commercial stuff. Yep. And I was, but even then, you know, when I was putting stuff out initially, none of the DJs were, playing uh, it, supporting it. They weren't supporting it. And then it got the stage where they were supporting it, but they weren't, leaving reactions they weren't putting their name to anything and then it just came from you know i actually had to really start picking and choosing what gigs i was doing so i was getting thousands of dollars doing some gigs but i had to stop doing them you know um 
you know, then I would go and play. I had to take a year out from playing in Scotland and Glasgow so that I could go and play at pressure. The techno thing. Yeah, slam. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the drop and like they were paying me like five hundred pounds. So I'd gone from these and people would say, Oh, you do it you do this for the money, you do that for the money. And at that point, it certainly wasn't you weren't playing techno for the money. <laughs> you just weren't. And um um yeah, then uh, even though people, I got the uncertainties, but this is a very important point, and you touched on it. That them early years, because techno wasn't what it was then, you know what I mean? But them early years, that beat, that chunkiness, that tempo, it was still driving, right? So I was able to go and play that set in God's Kitchen or at the festivals and blah, blah, blah. It was being accepted because of the energy in it. Yeah. But then once that was becoming... Minimal, all that slow down and... What happened was, the what happens with the techno guys, we see it every time when, when people who are not normally into techno gravitate towards techno, then the techno people drop the tools on that sound and they'll go to something totally different. We've seen it with... The, the the techno scene at the minute. If you look at peak time techno, it's more of a trance. Trance, trance. Yeah, yeah. So you go and look at what the other guys are doing in the in, uh, industrial hard techno. Totally different because they don't want the association. You know what I mean? So that's what happened. And then I followed that curve of the techno thing. I tried to follow it and follow it. But what happened was I was alienating my crowd so much. And I'm playing like 130 BPM plinkety plunkety. Yeah, I remember stuff. all that type of stuff. Yeah, it was real. Yeah. Just had no energy. And Bear was doing it as well. Yeah. Bear done it. I remember sitting uh, after parties with Bear and we are talking about it and we are we're playing all this Aang music stuff and it was really... Trippy. And Bear yeah, was yeah. getting slagged off for it because they love Bear for being Bear and hard. But we were just trying to go on this... It was interesting because it was fresh and blah, blah, blah. But again, not thinking about, you weren't thinking about your, you're just thinking about it as a music lover and finding new stuff. And and that crowd was very, very cool. And there was no way that they were letting me in. Even more so, no way. So, you know, I was doing, as I said before, 15, 20 gigs uh, for a long time. And I was flying to a lot of places, but I was flying to every hole in the hedge. You know, maybe I'm going to a gig in um, Bulgaria and it's taking me five flights to get there. Like like it's some, you know, you got a half a turntable and half a speaker, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're like, Why am I doing like, this? Yeah. I'm doing. Um, and I really felt that I was, like I was having all these guys on. I was having Ben Sims on the show. I was having uh, Coxie. I was having uh, Sven Houghton. Dave Clark was co-hosting the show. Um, everybody was on there. It was definitely at that time, it was the biggest outlet for techno music. But it's strange, not strange, it's interesting that not being accepted into it, you know, like they were happy you were playing the music, but the door was, the invitation was it's like you were being yeah. used nearly. Like it was like, it's someone that you'd ring up at two o'clock in the morning if, if there was no one else around, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's what oh, they were doing oh, to you. Yeah. yeah. 
throw away and and it was um you know even that the mixed mag funky techno cd i put out 2003 uh, there was nothing really happening like that mm. you know yeah um so it was a way ahead of its time and ultimately that's when my radio show came to an end as well you know they sat me down and they were like we need you to go back to hard house I'm like, well, I'm four years deep into this techno at the minute. Like, there's no way you can go back to that. They're like, well, you're not hitting the demographic of the age demographic that we need you to be hitting and why we brought you to the station. I said, you brought me to the station five years ago. Like, my demographic is not that demographic now anyway. They were like, "Um, the sounds just matured way too much. And um yeah you know um we don't want to continue the show in this format if you want to change then great i was like well i can't i I physically can't i couldn't change i couldn't i just couldn't in my heart i couldn't and i couldn't like you can't go from techno back to art house then even though that's what we're kind of doing a little bit now. <laughs> Back then, it just, it just wouldn't have happened. And, um, you know, I was 26 at the time, which is incredibly young for having that. Experience uh, of life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And my big fear was anybody that left, anybody that Radio 1 parted companies with back in the day, was 50 or 40. They're older people. So I'm saying that Ian Parkinson and Matt Priest, you know, um, we need to figure out how this is dealt with because I'm 26. Like, as soon as I'm off Radio 1, it's going to be like, oh, well, Ferg's shit now. You know, so they really, for the first time ever, really went to town and, and really helped that transition. I don't know if you know anybody at Radio 1, but once you, if you're in, you're in. Once you're out, you're out. Like, it's this Radio 1 bubble. It's a very special thing. And they really went to town. You know, my last show, they asked me where I wanted to do it again. Obviously, I wanted to go and do it back in Ireland again, so I'd done it at Kelly's. Actually, the first time I ever played at Kelly's. <laughs> and, um, you know, they gave me six hours. They gave me two hours for my for this. They gave me the two hours for my show, they give me my show for two hours and they give me two hour essential mix. Don't heard of them. Um, and that was it. That was the last, that was the last show. I don't know, essential mix 2007. And if you listen to that essential mix, it is so good, but it didn't connect with people. People hated it because it was so, um, I'd done it on Ableton. I wanted to make it all like one record. And at that point, I was so into like really transitions and stuff, yeah. Putting yeah. stuff together. And it was like, you know, I listened to it now and I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but for what I was trying to do at that time, that was a great essential mix. But ultimately, that was my last one. <laughs> and how did the move to, to America come about? The move to America came about my good friend Neil Moffat, who I met in the nineties. Uh, he's a guy who developed God's Kitchen after you know Tyrone de Savary and Chris Griffiths. 
at Christmas. Is that Neil Navarra? It's the same guy, you know? No, no Moffat, 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 yeah. yeah. Neil Navarra was a resident DJ. Yeah. Great guy. I met him Great a couple guy. of times, yeah. I thought him might have been the same guy, just with a different name. So what happened was in the early 2000s, Neil came on tour with me um, to America on my visa and he ended up coming back more. I had never liked coming back to America that much because back then they were really scared of the rave culture and the, the dancing and they were, you could turn up the gig and the fire marshals could stop a gig at any time. Um, they just weren't and they didn't want it happening. But uh, done a gig in Vegas, 2001, uh, Neil kept coming back here and then he developed the Hikasan brand, Omnia, uh, Wet Republic. Um, the list goes on. I think they ended up having like 50 places around the world, restaurants, clubs, like he walked away. He he uh, moved on now, but um, he invited me over 2010. And then it was 2000. I fought with the idea for ages because I'm like, I can't go and play that music, you know. And then for a couple of years, I kept on doing what I was doing. And I was like, do you know what? I think it's time. Time. I want to. I need to, I need, I need to change, change it up. And I came here and I was doing maybe 20, 30 gigs playing uh, house music on the terrace at the nightclub at the time called Pure. And then I just developed as the scene, the EDM scene grew and grew and grew. And then I'm getting offered more work and then I'm getting offered big contract and then all of a sudden I'm doing 250 shows and I'm like, fuck. You're just going, 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 going non-stop, you know. Um, and it was a great period, you know. I was able to, to look at it at the start, you know, going to the first EDC here in Vegas and standing with my hands on the rail and looking at everybody and going... Okay, what is this? What is going on here? And I'm looking at it, and everybody's dressed up like crasher kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for a big part of that for me was like, okay, this is not too far removed from ten what years ago in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So how can I get my mind into this and create an opportunity for myself where I can understand that my musical knowledge and where I've moved throughout the scene for many years that I am able to now look at this as a job, which I've never done in the past. And I've always gone with my heart. But now, for this point in time, I need to go with their heart, look at them and understand, okay, I the only thing I have in common with these people now is I know what I was feeling as a kid listening to this music for the first time. The prodigy wasn't underground. It was more of a commercial sound, right? You listen to the Prague Khan on top of the pops and stuff like that. So I had to transport my mindset way back and go, okay, I need to put myself back in the grassroots and, and understand that I am delivering this music to a lot of these people for the first time. You know, John Joe from Alabama's heard <laughs> yeah. Calvin Harris on the, radio, on the radio on the taxi to the way to the airport and hasn't yeah. got a clue. It's called EDM. So that's the people that I am pointing to. How can I be respectful to them, give them a good night, give them the first taste of a, a DJ set as true to who I 
um, as possible with also adding these uh, different genres into the set. How can I make it a cohesive thing for them? How can I start to read the room? How can I understand that there's so many different genres that I'm playing in the room, but how can I get everybody's hands in the air at one time, even though they like different stuff? That was a challenge for me. And that's what got me through being able to be here for all them years. And obviously, I had a fucking great contract. Let's not forget that. But first and foremost, that's what my head had to be thinking to listen to the, that music. You know, and at the time, it's really funny, at the time, um, the EDM sound was heavily leaning on a sound that was called Melbourne Bounce. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Offbeat bass line. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I can find some... Uh, Hoovers and horns in there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I can go back to that era and I can go back to my youth and I can deliver that. I know how to deliver that. So there was a lot of lot of that thinking went into it. And you know, uh, a lot of people were, you know, the back but some backlashes starting again. And I'm like, okay, well, I've also been here as well. I've dealt with these backlashes again. So, you know, um, and obviously I I, I was uh a lot older then, you know, 32. I'm dealing with things better and have, a, have uh, you know, dealt with the bombardment of confusion from people. So it was an easier passage than the hard house uh, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what was it like living in Vegas during the pandemic? Brilliant. And I say that... Uh, from my own personal experience it wasn't brilliant for everybody it was brilliant for me and my wife because we really decided to change our life we got rid of i sold my whole studio i sold absolutely everything in the house i don't know if you've seen my studio or anything but incredible like i had the biggest moog modular moog you've ever seen that i built i had absolutely everything my fascination was with old gear you know, I was shipping all the original synths from Japan. Like I'm paying a big dollar for them because I didn't want them to have one scratch on it. So I'm paying premium for this stuff. And then I was like, you know what? I want to, I'm just going to, I want to sell everything. I want to get rid of everything and just be really light and really free of everything. I don't want to have to, I don't want to take my contract back. I don't want to have to take gigs, uh, that much gigs again. I don't want to be on the treadmill of, you know, bagging myself in the corner because I created this incredibly expensive lifestyle that was just really unattainable. It wasn't making me happy. You know, um, you're buying stuff to create happiness. Oh, yeah, you get that happiness for five seconds and you're buying something else. And um, just freeing ourselves from that and as I say you know we went and lived in the RV for a bit and um, just really trying to evaluate what what our life what we wanted our life to be and it was a beautiful time because we didn't have to go to work we were able to be calm we were ready to relax into this new kind of um, being that we wanted to be you know and, and you know, um, 
very thankful for that time through the COVID period. And as I say, listen, everybody had to make a lot of sacrifices. It was our biggest earning year that we never earned. And, you know, we live now on, uh, we make sure our expenses are really minimal. So as we have more time and more time to gather, more time to do stuff, you know what I mean? So it's, a, it's been a beautiful thing for us. Yeah, I noticed from like your Instagram and your stories, there's a lot of like uh, quotes and f- philosophical things. Is that, do you, do you, obviously you have a very spiritual side to you as well. Is that something that you cultivated during the pandemic or would it have been there beforehand? It was there before, you know, it was there before, but didn't really know, you know, how to channel it or, you know, uh, be how to be with it. You know, I've always been... I kind of a, a very happy uh, person with within me. You know, maybe I've put things in my life that have been huge obstacles that have made me unhappy. But generally speaking, I'm an easily happy person. My wife will tell you she's never met anybody as happy as me, which is good. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's always been that side of me, definitely more so now, you know. Um, doing a lot more reading, doing a lot more searching in that world. Um, you know, I guess my life was very numb of a lot of stuff for many years because of, uh, drug abuse or alcohol or whatever it was, you know? So when I took that away as well, it it, it gave me a a lot more space for this to kind of grow, you know? Um, and that's another story, you know. I've done nearly 500 gigs now, Silver, so um, it was a big change. It was something I tried to change for a long time, even when I was at Radio 1, I was trying to stop drinking, you know, and I, I didn't have a drink for two weeks, and they were like, Fergus, you sounds fucking shit, mate. You're very stiff. There's a wee fucking 24 packs smearing off ice, mate. Get it in you. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough, though, DJing sober, especially because you can just feel very... For me, I've done it a good few times as well because I've sort of cleaned up how I've been living in the last few years, but it just feels like very self-conscious at times to, to be playing to a lot of people who are looking at you, especially like uh, intimate shows where people are right in front of you. And if you're not, for me, I find it difficult to sort of let loose or to let my face know that I'm actually enjoying it. I am enjoying it, but I just yeah. can't feel <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Let my face know that yeah. I'm yeah. I probably you look like, like I'm not having fun, your... but I'm, I am actually having fun. Yeah, I'm just need like to let someone myself... stole your Christmas yeah, dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's right. And it's like, I I am totally different with it now. You know, um, I feel so comfortable doing it. And I actually feel like I am delivering a better show um, to... Uh, people in the club, you know, I'm, 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 um, you know, people say, oh, well, you're not, you're lost in the moment when you're drinking. Well, you're not really ever lost in the moment as a DJ because how can you be? You're always, you're always, you have to be, you have to be in the moment. Yeah. You're thinking all the time. You're thinking what's coming up next and four tracks ahead and stuff. The people that are are in the crowd, they're in their moment, but they're not in the same moment. No. It's a different moment, you know, and, and, that's what I love. I love going listening to Black Coffee and I love playing with him. It's a he's a beautifully um, 
what's the word? Um, can't think of the word. It's going to annoy me now. Um, beautifully unpredictable would be the word. Um, the energy he has, I mean, you're just never going to know what song he's going to buy next. It's a totally different, he just plays totally different. You know, he's, he's unpredictable, it's great. Um, it's like, how would I describe it? It's like when you go to a black coffee show, it's like you really feel the energy. You're not seeing the energy if you're born up, fist pumping, they're not going crazy. It's just uh, this anticipation, this growing energy. It's an absolutely amazing, I love it. My favorite DJ of the last 20 years for sure. Mm. Very, very good. So just just be, just before we go, just to tip on what you're up to now, obviously, like in the last year or so, you've made a comeback with the productions and stuff of, of Alpha Centauri and take you there and level up and other stuff like that on, on Armada. What, what's what's going on for you at the moment? Obviously, as well, um, you're with a DJ NZ Fresh. That was one of the first proper agencies I was with as well. So it's good to see yeah, you there with Barry. Um, yeah, yeah. So what's what's going on in, in Fergie's life at the moment, studio-wise? Fergie, Fergie land, we are um, putting out our fifth single next week, Phenomenon, with Armada. Um, um, so that's been an absolutely great experience. James Armada's been incredible. Um, he was the first person to hit me up and, and was like, even before, you know, I was deciding to come back and do go back into DJ and like I was done and he was like, do you want to remix uh, Misha and Tim Access? I was like, oh. I was saying to my wife, I was like, I'm not going to be involved in the scene anymore, but I, I, I'm really interested in doing this remix. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, we're going to do, do more stuff with Armada. Um, I'm just constantly in the studio. We've got some really great stuff coming up and it's all I'm making sure it all has a little nod to the the years gone by just because that's what does it for me trying to you know have a little dip my, dip my toe keep my toe dipped in there a little bit um, I've been working on my Instagram for a long time I didn't post anything on it you know I'm like I had no interest in posting I am uh, on the tonight or uh, I am with Zed tonight. It's going to be great. Because people that follow me are like, Ferg, shut the fuck up. Yeah. I feel the same <laughs> on doing that shit. It's, it's training. You know, doing that so, shit. you know, so my Instagram, I wanted to post less and connect more. So what could I post about that I actually wanted to reply to people about? And it was started off, I think the first post was like, you know, talking about your first rave that you went to. And, you know, so my stories, which is interesting because my stories are all long form, which in this day and age when people's attention span is very small, they read my stories. And not only do they read my stories, they reply with their own stories that they've got from the memory of my story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's beautiful. We're on there and we're just connecting. And I try and keep my post real. I try and be honest. And I try, you know, I don't try and be like, oh, this is brilliant all the time. And this is like the best thing ever. You know, it's, it's what we do is part of your soul. Yes. But there's parts of it that are annoying as fuck. 
you know, and it's like all the stuff that you go through to be a DJ, that's the shit you get paid for, right? You know, the the the, the part you go and play the music is like very small part. You go to get to do the actual part you enjoy for two hours. And it's maybe taking you, you know, a day, four yeah, it's work or whatever, to, you know, and shit, whatever it is to do that two hours and it flies by and you're like, okay, fuck. You know, so just trying to keep it as real as it can. Um, and it's just nice to connect them with people, you know, a lot of uh, older followers and getting a lot of newer followers and just just connection, you know, keeping that going. And um, I've actually the dawn, I've just remixed it. Actually. Really, so yeah. Send it to you in the finish here. Very you good. Give me your, your, your view on it. Yeah, so I never wanted to remix the Tony track. Um, then um, I heard, once, sorry, once I was getting back into doing the production, and I was really happy with the sound. I was like, okay, um, I would love to remix Are You Already? And I asked Heidi Strikes if I could mix it, and they were like, no. They wouldn't let me do it. I mean, and I was really disappointed because I was with Tony when he made Are You Already? I was sat in the studio with him when he was making it. Um, so it was disappointing. But then uh, Tim Benz at New East hit me up and um asked me to do the dawn so i spoke to tony's sister about it and yeah i've done it you know and i've tried to keep it as close to the original as i can you know i want to obviously leave a huge respect there for tony but bring up the date just a little bit uh, i'll send it to you so you think man yeah i remade that's a track i remixed a long time ago as well it got released on tidy uh if i, if I made it now it would probably sound a lot better but as you were saying earlier on we just we did these things how we did them back then we didn't have the knowledge that we know now but i did i, I i'm proud to say that i remixed one of the best tracks ever and hopefully did some kind of justice to it at that time that's such a it's a it's a huge task you know when people say to me uh, you better make it as good as ever. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm like the original is the original. Like, I'm. I'm all I'm trying to do with it is give it a new lease of life. Like, I'm trying to first and foremost lay down a huge slab of respect that I have for Tony and keeping it as similar as I can to the original, and you know, just give it a new lease of life and maybe get some. Uh, get his name out there in some way you know I'm not trying to like you can't make it any better shut the fuck up you know what I mean you're not making it like <laughs> you know so you, you're opening yourself especially me doing this you know you're opening yourself for huge criticism but I wouldn't put I wouldn't have ultimately I said let me have a crack at it and if I'm happy with it then yes if I'm not I think uh, I'm very, very happy with how it's turned out. Um, I think it really sits in the sound that I'm doing at the minute. It's a great time for me to be coming back into this scene. It's it it's kind of feels like a you know perfect match. You know, it's the one of the big problems was when I was playing techno. It was so far removed from hard house stuff but this 
from people who know me from Pound Techno will listen to them with sound that I'm making now and will still be able to get on board with it and be like, oh, okay, yeah, it sounds like Ferg. You know what I mean? It's not too, like, it's not too um, different from what they will remember from the stuff I was putting out on eccentric music and stuff like that. But um, I just want to mention, uh, you mentioned Barry from Fresh, and uh, he's been a huge inspiration for me coming back uh, into all this and I've been learning a hell of a lot from him you know um, he some of the stuff he pull, he's been pulling out has been unbelievable you know you see I don't even seen that tour I've done for the five weeks like in the UK yeah it was yeah it was yeah. Uh, I know he was getting me on because you know I'm coming back and I'm like oh well you know uh, I've been Fergie playing EDM for uh, the last 10 years in Vegas that's uh you know the hard house thing was a bit of a push so I'm not sure if I can come back from doing what I've done and he made it happen you know obviously Carl got on board and you know the colours Ricky and Julie and uh, you know um, getting the gigs with Charlotte DeWitt and Camel Fat and Art Bat and all this Malarkey's been incredible Leeds Warehouse brilliant uh, Ben Nicky show was huge um, uh, we are festival. What else did I do? What, um, um, fuck, I forget the other, the other one. Can't remember. So many. It was like I'd done like fucking 10 gigs in that little period. It was just, and have you had more plans to come back to the to UK, Ireland this year? Yeah, there was a they wanted me to come back for, uh, um, um. Um, the fifth, uh, four gigs in February, but it's just been too crazy over here with all the COVID stuff, so it's not going to happen. But um, definitely going to be doing some stuff in Ireland for sure. Um, yeah, so it's just like great times, mate. You know, it's like we're just kind of getting the music out there, and you know, that's another world in itself. You know, I just posted a thing, we just hit a million plays on Spotify for Alpha Centauri, which is incredible for us. You know, six months ago, we had 600 monthly listeners mm-hmm. on Fergie page, you know, and I never even set the Fergie page up. I, I didn't even know there was a Fergie page, so someone else set it up. So we went from 600 listeners to, you know, so it's a million plays in the grand scheme of things as being an artist nowadays is not loads. But it's huge for us. It's massive. And, you know, one thing I will say is this. You know, when I was back in the day, when I was um, doing a lot of DJ schools with my mum and stuff like that, you know, a lot of the kids would ask, what's the most enjoyable part of making it as a DJ? And I always said, the beginning, you know, the, the getting your foot on the ladder, getting your name on the flyer. You know, getting all these things for the first time, that hungry hunger that you have then is like nothing else. So, you know, here I am being able to have that all over again. Like you're starting over again in many, many ways. And to be able to look at it with them fresh eyes and be like, okay, you know, okay, we're not, we don't have the most followers on Instagram or, you know, I have to do the open set at this festival. And what, what, what do I like about that? Oh, you like about that is like the hunger, the trying, the you know, it's like knowing what you know, but also 
having respect for the the scene and getting back in there and just understanding how precious them things are. And that's one of the things I'm most thankful for, you know, being able to look at it with um, experienced eyes, but also an understanding of where I'm at right now. I'm not where I used to be at, right? So it's brilliant. Perfect. I think that's the perfect way to end this podcast. Fergie, thanks very much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. And uh, I hope the next time that we meet will be in person and not on Zoom. So just want to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank today, you. man. Yeah, really, really appreciate it. It was great to actually uh, hear your story. That's uh, incredible. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, man. Take care.